Hello and welcome to the Modern Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Mick Ryan. Thank you for joining me. The Modern Wellness Podcast aim is to be of service to your mental, emotional, spiritual and physical well-being. And in order to do so, I interview guests who I believe are best able to facilitate that goal. And today's guest is Dr. Olivia Ong, who is the heart-centered doctor. And Dr. Ong experienced a severe spinal cord injury in 2008 that prompted a very, very long recovery period for her over several years. And in that time, she really reassessed her practice as a doctor and what she wanted to offer. And what she does now is she provides uh, help for other doctors to help them to avoid burnout and to find balance in their lives. And she has some great advice, not just for doctors, but for general people about the importance of self-compassion in our life. So I hope you enjoy today's show. I certainly enjoyed interviewing Dr. Ong and you'll hear from me later. So Olivia, thank you so much for coming on the Modern Wellness Podcast. I'm really delighted to have you on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Mick, for having me. Um, great to have you. Yeah, so I guess um, looking for a starting point, uh, you, you've been a GP, uh, a pain um, specialist yes, for, right. for quite a long time. Yes. But 2008 seemed to be a point in your life where things really took a turn. Um, can you explain what happened and, and where your life went from there? Sure. So on in September 2008, it was just an ordinary spring day, really. I was doing the usual thing, like getting, you know, walking to work. I parked my car and was walking towards the hospital where I worked in. And suddenly a car out of nowhere came out of, uh, came out and hit me at high speed. I was rendered a para, uh, I was uh, rendered paraplegic um, immediately because that impact actually broke my back. And I was paralyzed from the waist down and I wasn't able to move and feel my legs at all. So when that happened, the paramedics came and transported me to one of the major hospitals in Melbourne where they did emergency surgery because my spine was unstable. But what I, what really devastated me was that I was diagnosed with a spinal cord injury, a very serious injury, in fact. And I was actually told by the doctors that I'll never walk again. And bearing in mind, I was only 28 at that time. So I was still quite young and I was at the prime time of my life. So it was a major blow for me. I remember how devastated I felt, you know, the anguish, the mental, emotional pain. And I'll calculate, I was in hospital for a period of six months. And I had to adjust to life being in a wheelchair day in, day out. I never gave up my hope and dreams of walking again. So in 2010, I heard about this place called Project Walk in San Diego, United States. This particular rehab center helps spinal cord injury survivors learn to walk again. So I told myself that I will, I have to give myself a chance to walk again and I'll do anything and everything in my power to give, to achieve my goal of walking again. So uh, with my supportive husband, John, uh, along my side, we relocated to San Diego so that I can focus on doing intensive rehab at Project Walk for a couple of years. Okay. Uh, and so tell me, was, was it a complete um, severing of, of the spinal cord? It was incomplete. So okay. that meant, yeah, that meant that I could 
feel part of my legs and move part of my legs. But uh, my right leg was totally still paralyzed, but I had more movement on my left leg. Okay. Basically, yeah. Right. And so it was, it was pretty much two years full time that you were there in San Diego going through the process of, of getting back to walking again. That's right. Yes. Did you did you feel from the very beginning that you were going to achieve your goal? Did you have that intention or was there a lot of days where you, you really felt that sense of am I wasting my time? What, why am I doing this? Mm. So there, there were days um, where I felt whether whether I would achieve my goal because it's it's there's so much uncertainty there, Mick. Like I I've put, you know, I had to work out like five hours each day, Monday to Friday. And there were times where I was quite disappointed with my the progress on my right leg because it's a lot weaker than my left. And I was both angry and scared at the same time. I was angry because I was only young. I was only 28. And well, by the time I went to project, well, I was 30, but still, I was still young at the prime time of my life. And everyone else or my friends moved on and I, I didn't suddenly. And I, I, here I am stuck doing rehabilitation Monday to Friday, nine to five, learning to walk again like a baby. Literally, I have to learn how to crawl, stand on my two feet and then taking some steps and then taking more steps and then walking around the, the gym in a lap, multiple laps. That took uh, that took a... Close to two and a half to three years, in fact. And there were days where the progress was slow, and I was very disappointed in myself. But there were days where I was scared. I was scared because I I wanted more progress, but it just there were days where it just plateaued, and mm-hmm. I was just quite disappointed, really. Yeah. So, given your profession and your expertise yourself, what was the prognosis beforehand in terms of your recovery? You were told you wouldn't walk again. Did you feel like that was the case? And at what point did you say, "You know what? I'm not going to accept that"? Mm. I think when I heard that diagnosis, of course, I was devastated, and a part of me just wanted to believe what the doctors were telling me because they are the doctors, right? I should they, they they should know better. But there's also another part of me that goes. I do not want to accept this as my di- my diagnosis. I I think I can. I, I have to give myself the best ability in any way, shape, or form, and power just to learn to walk again. So, a part of me was defiant and stubborn. Well, that apparently is a trait that I passed on to my daughter. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I never wanted. I never gave up hope. I just had this wish, this hope, this dream that I'll walk again. I read lots of you know blogs, lots of videos and YouTube clips of spinal cord injury survivors who learn to walk again. And that's how I feel my own sense of hope at that time, the dark times. Yeah. But it, it takes a huge amount of of willpower, as you describe stubbornness, but huge amount of willpower to to just set your mind to that and say, I'm gonna just not give up. Because as you say, there are those days, and I'm sure yeah. there's many of them where it feels like you're just not getting anywhere. And mm. um I know from my my clinical practices in acupuncturist, and I, I encounter people with spinal cord injuries that there are many days where you feel like you go backwards. And interesting how you mentioned acupuncture, because I actually had acupuncture very early on in my injury, um, probably about a week or two even after the injury. Um, the acupuncturist actually came to the hospital to do treatment, and he was allowed to do that. Thankfully, the doctors were kind enough to let him do that. I believe that that's actually played a strong part in my recovery, in my neurological recovery. Truly believe that um, because it really 
helped me, um, I guess, not only gain more sensations. That's how I started. Like my recovery started that way. And I started getting more movement as well. So I, I have to say, um, even even when I um, went to the United States, I had a, there was acupuncturist working at Project Walk at the same time, and he was doing more like um, the one with the scalp acupuncture as well and the body one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that. I had that Monday to Friday as well. Okay. In addition to my physical therapy, they seem to complement each other really well, and that's how I, I believe I how I got back to walking again within two and a half years. So you feel acupuncture has had a role to play in that as well yeah. as, you know, the actual physical rehabilitation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I felt that. Um, and for people who are local, there is actually um, a, a spinal cord injury recovery center here in Melbourne called um, uh, Next Step, uh, yeah. who also have um, exercise physiologists, acupuncturists, massage therapists on staff and, and have a full program for mm. people who are recovering or, you know, working through spinal cord injuries. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I worked there for a wee while um, before having kids when I couldn't find time for things like that. Mm. But then after that, that, that was such a huge part of your life then, a huge chunk taken out of, I guess, your your, your practice and your working practice as well in your life. And then you, I assume you came back to Melbourne after that then? Yeah, I did. Um, yeah. I, was, I was there from... March 2010 all the way till late 2013 altogether almost I'm almost three years if okay. I calculate that yeah and I came back and I started my I started part-time work as a rehabilitation registrar because I wanted to resume my career I took three years off it was a quite long time so I started part-time work and then I went on full-time within six months and I set the um the, uh, we call it the rehab medicine fellowship exams the year after and I, thankfully I passed it I think the fact that I went through a spinal cord injury just helped me become a better rehabilitation doctor I mean I went through the injury itself so when I studied about spinal cord injury in my rehabilitation medicine textbook it was like I lived through it so I don't really need to study very much about it because <laughs> <laughs> I have lived in experience yeah. and I, I know so many quadriplegics and paraplegics and yeah, and the experiences were, was a learning point for me as well. I mean, I learned more about the injury. Hanging around with people with spinal cord injuries, you know, yeah. it wasn't a textbook thing. It was, um, you know, connecting with others with similar type of injuries. Yeah, that human experience. I think if I, I have to say these, this um, spinal cord injury, I guess, yes, it was a big thing that happened in my life, but it taught me to be more human. That's a thing, which is really, I think as doctors, we sometimes forget that we're also humans and we have needs like everyone else. But uh, this injury just forced me to slow down, literally slow down and yeah. smell the roses, literally. Okay. Because yeah. would you have had many spinal cord um, injury patients prior to your own accident? Uh, no, actually, I just started my rehabilitation medicine training as a registrar. So I wasn't exposed to to any at all. Um, in fact, the um, the job I was going to do um, next after the particular job that I was doing at that time was going to be a spinal cord injury term. But what ended up the straight a funny thing happened was that when I went when I you know it took I mean it took me a year to readjust to life in a wheelchair, and I went back to part I did go back part time for six months and then went back to went to Project Walk because I had to test for myself whether I was still capable of working 
like cognitively in my mind whether I was still able, and I was able to still do it, to do my job. But I saw my perspective has changed. Even you know, I was working in a wheelchair. I mean, my work was excellent. They made accommodation for me to have like extra person to help me during the ward rounds. And yeah, it's just changed changed the way I, I I see things. And I was able to relate to the patients who had. I mean, I was attached to the spinal cord injury rotation. Like, yeah, it was quite an mm. irony of it that. I was supposed to do that term, that that job as an able-bodied person, but a year later I did that work. Well, I still fulfilled the um, the term I was meant to work in that time frame, but I I went in there in a in, as a paraplegic in a wheelchair, just like some of the patients over there. Which, but I think they um they they saw me very differently. Uh, they saw me as someone who really got where they they were coming from because obviously I was in the wheelchair and they saw they were they. Yeah. So we uh, we built rapport very quickly. They you know they trusted me really well, like a lot. And yeah, I was able to you know like listen more, I guess, because it really the injury just forced me to slow down, and I was able to intuitively listen to them a lot more. I really got where they were coming from. Like previously, when I was just like the other doctors, I was on autopilot, you know, like, and patients, not saying they don't mean anything, it's just that we are so stressed and, you know, burnt out that we have to, you know, we can't even have quality conversations with our patients. We just have to get our job done and move on and move on from one patient to another, one patient to another within a very quick time frame. Yeah, so, it, yeah, this, this injury just just changed my perspective for the better, I felt. Yeah, and I guess it really would mm. change how how your patients perceive you, as you say. You know yeah. that you know. I don't know if it if it's so much that when a doctor is treating somebody in that situation, whether it's a lot of it's theoretical or, or yeah. empirical, but you know, very rarely would you encounter somebody who's actually had that same injury as you when exactly. you've had something like that. So, I mean, <laughs> as much knowledge and wisdom as you can gain about something unless you've actually experienced it 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 is not the same really is it no no not really like um with the spinal cord injury having been through that i can't yeah it's it's a different different kind of feeling when you met uh when you meet a fellow when you meet a patient with a similar injury because i could i could i could actually look them in the eye and say i've been through what you've been through i know how you feel and that actually you mean it when you say it because I've been through where they, they yeah. had been. So it's a it's a diff, it's a it's a inner knowing, a different kind of feeling, perhaps. That yeah, it's it's just certainly made me a lot wiser as well. You know, and yeah, it's just changed it's also changed the way I, pra- I practice as well as a doctor. I became a lot more compassionate, really. And so just with, with talking about that compassion then, yeah. because reading uh, your story. Yeah. You said that after your injury, you decided to to change how your practice. You, you came back and you, you did the um, the rehabilitation training, um, but it sounded like you ended up being quite busy as a practitioner then after your injury. Yeah, that's right. Because um, I had the exams, and after I finished the exams, I became a pain physician full time, and not only that, you know my. A spinal cord injury is it's you know it's it's a long lasting injury. It doesn't just stop when you learn to walk again. 
you know, I had issues with bladder and bowels and lots of stuff, you know, like things like that, that I had to grapple with for the rest of my life. Fortunately, I have managed them pretty well, but you know, like there are days where I'm really tired. Like it's just part of the spinal cord injury. It causes, neuro- we call we call it neurological fatigue. That makes you really, really tired. Okay. And at the time I was working full time and I had a toddler, he was three. And Unfortunately, in 2019, July 2019, I suffered from burnout. It was really a very spectacular burnout, I have to say. Um, I just could in July 2019, I just couldn't get out of it. Not from the, not your typical can't get out of it. I have to press the snooze button like a, th- a lot of times. I physically just couldn't because I was just so exhausted. And then I called up my GP and said, you know, I'm I'm gonna take a few months off. I'm really really burnt out from life and work in general. And she agreed that I, I needed help. And that's why I did. Yeah. I got help from my GP. I ended up seeing a psychologist for some time as well, just to help me recover from burnout. You know, I, it, yeah, I, I took about a couple, two or two months off burnout, um, okay. to recover from burnout. And you mentioned your son. How many kids do you have? I have two now. Two kids. now. And did you have one child at that time? <laughs> yeah, I had I had Joe at that time who was three. Okay. So you, you mean obviously, as you say, it's a lifelong thing when you have a spinal cord injury and, and that's right. You know, working uh, as a doctor and then also having a child is, you know, as a parent, I know that just having a child <laughs> yeah. can be pretty tiring. Yes. Um so two months off when you return to work. Something changed for you? Yeah, um, it was quite interesting. Physically, I felt okay. Like, I recovered physically. But I think burnout did something more than just emotionally exhausting me. It actually caused, like, a really hard to describe. It's like a wounding to my soul. It, it caused, like, a spiritual and emotional black hole, essentially, which I... Um, was trying to figure out what was going on. I just could I just couldn't. And the pandemic and then the pandemic happened last year in March 2020. And at that time, you know, I was pregnant with Jacqueline, who's now 15 months old. And the pandemic again forced me to slow down. Because at that time I was, you know, I was recovering from burnout. I was there, but not really, you know, I was back at work, but not really there, you know, emotionally and spiritually, not there at all. And then I went on to get a I went on to get coach, a coach to coach me through my mindset because I was thinking, yeah, uh, coaching has its time and purpose, and I think it, it's time to give myself a, a goal now to focus on my personal development, and it's changed my life. Being being coached by my mindset coach helped me so much, and I told myself, if coaching has transformed my life for the better, I, re, I what I want to do is I would like to be a coach to help my fellow medical peers through burnout because burnout is an unspoken pandemic, unfortunately, in the healthcare industry. And a lot, a lot of doctors, unfortunately, do not want to seek help because, uh, when they're in burnout. And by the time, if, if they do end up seek help, seeking help, it's too late for them. They end up with severe depression, anxiety, and unfortunately, some of them have committed suicide. And that was the whole reason why I was re- really... Um, upset because I was just hearing stories about doctors killing themselves. And I went, I told myself, I think enough is enough. I've, I've had this. I'm going to 
do something about it. So I decided to set up a business. That's how that's how my business all started. Okay. Because I just wanted to um, speak about uh, doctor burnout and you know raise more awareness about it. And then I ended up writing a book about it, um, doctor burnout and how self compassion can help doctors through burnout. And that's and that, the heart centeredness of medicine. Is that that's correct? correct. Yeah, yeah. That's my book that was just launched last month. Yes, it's um, because I've, as I've, I've noticed just doctors not looking after themselves in, in terms of their well-being. They don't put themselves first. And what ends up happening, they burn out and get overworked, stressed, burnt out. And my book has heart-based tools, such as self-compassion that they can use to help themselves through burnout. Yeah. If I told myself if I can, if my book just prevents one doctor from spiraling down into that rabbit hole of burnout and suffering and will help that doctor not kill him his or herself that my, my job is done you know that's the purpose of me writing the book and speaking about it and coaching doctors about it about burnout recovery yeah it's and it's interesting that you're you're talking about that because I, I had a friend uh, many years yeah. ago who was studying medicine he was coming to the end of his studies at the time um yeah. And I remember him saying to me that everyone he studied with, all they ever wanted to be was doctors. You know, it's not like they were just trying to and see how it worked out. So it was just, no. that's all people were interested in was, was studying medicine because they just loved mm. medicine. They loved the idea of helping people. And I think people get the perception that doctors are um, seeing people seeing so many people because they're just trying to get as many people in as possible yeah um and people think it's it's a it's a money thing whereas well somebody pointed out to me a couple of years ago yeah just in relation to doctors that well actually it's a reflection of our society because our society wants things quicker yeah. and it's happened on every level of our society yeah that you know we have less and less time everything is instant and that's a reflection then on medicine. It's not necessarily that that's what doctors want. Doctors don't want to give you less time, mm. but there's just such a huge demand on the medical system that you just have to get people through as quickly as possible to get the next person who needs to see a doctor as well. Mm. And it's not necessarily a choice by each individual doctor it's just that there is just a huge, huge demand on our medical system as it is right now, which causes so much burnout for medical practitioners. And Exactly. And the pandemic certainly made the situation a lot worse. Medical professionals, as you, as you know, may have, have burned out way before COVID. They were so burnt out way before COVID. And the pandemic was, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back really exposed the flaws of the healthcare system that was already there. And not only that right now, you know, the, the doctors and nurses at the front line are more than ever, even more burnt out. In fact, um, you know, research shows that for before COVID, 42% of doctors were burnt out. And recent figures coming in shows that about it's gone up to 60% post-pandemic. This is strong data coming from the US and Europe. This is a worldwide research in general. I, but I suspect that that number will just continue to creep up uh, over time. And what we will find is that these doctors and nurses will, are so burnt out that they will just leave the profession altogether. So I won't be surprised if in 2022 in Australia, 
doctors and nurses walk out of their jobs and we have uh, a medical workforce or nursing workforce as well collapse. And the healthcare, when the nurses and doctors leave, the healthcare system collapses, really. That's the in, that might be an inevitable outcome of all this. So that's why I feel that the um, people in the higher up, like government bodies, medical associations, specialty colleges, have to just be aware of this issue of burnout for, uh, from the pandemic, fatigue, and everything else that's going on with the pandemic. We're talking about specifically frontline healthcare workers mm. and actually do something about it. Um, strategies to, to help these doctors and nurses overcome burnout. So they have to, the people from the top up, like the government bodies, politicians, um, medical associations, and the doctors themselves, somehow they have to meet in the middle and talk about it. But it seems that everyone's operating differently, like the politicians are doing their thing, <laughs> revitalizing the economy, opening up borders. You see this a lot in the media. And then the doctors are just in the front line, not and the nurses as well, doing you know, working really hard, fighting, you know, fighting, still fighting against the pandemic and suffering. And really no one talks about them. Really, they're kind of like left to 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 their to their own suffering, which I'm really not very um, pleased to see. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You're not the first person who said that to me. I know somebody who works um, in, in an executive position who said that the biggest issue right now is um, the fact that staff are retiring right now. Okay. Uh, medical staff are retiring. Uh, paramedics are retiring because of the stress involved yeah. in, in the job that's happening right now. And, and our issues, people talk about, oh, we have lots of um, ICU beds. But yeah, but we don't have staff to actually man them because that's the biggest problem. People have retired since last year mm. and just haven't been replaced because, you know, mm. because of stress, because of burnout, because of, of, of the pressure. Okay. And while we're calling for everything to be opened up. And look, I've no doubt that many medical um, practitioners, nurses, wh whatever, are also mm -hmm. happy to see us opening society yeah. up and opening everything up. But at the same time, the medical system has to bear the brunt of that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Which is unfortunate, yeah. Yeah. And then who looks after the healers? That's the question. Yeah, of course. And so this is where this is, I guess this is a lot of your motivation in terms of um, heart centeredness of medicine. You, you described before a, a sense of a, a spiritual black hole, I think was the word you used. Yes. Would you have previously um, considered yourself a spiritual person? Yeah, I can definitely say that. Um, I believe that there is, we, we don't, just you know, see ourselves in the physical realm. I think there is in anything, there's always that emotional, mental realm and the spiritual realm, and but they all intertwine together. So I a lot of the my coaching style for, for burnout recovery in my clients involves mind, body, and soul. Mind will be things because I'm an NLP practitioner myself, okay. and I do I'm a hypnotist. Hypnotist, yeah. And um, that's I so that's the mind bit where I focus on brain science reprogramming of the subconscious mind because that's where all the uh, emotions lie, subconscious mind. And then I focus on the heart, which is all the self compassion, mindfulness that's the heart uh, based work. And then the last thing is soul will be things. I also, I'm also a human design reader, so I, I do lots of spiritual things and they seem to help my clients. and yeah, the thing is the clients themselves have to be open to it. And, and you know, once they're open to it, they realize that 
there's more to medicine than just physical physical physicality. Um, there's also um, you know the spiritual aspects of medicine as well as the emotional and uh, mental aspects. Uh, take look at Dr. Joe Dispenza, like he's a mm-hmm. chiropractor, and his work is yeah. So I, I not saying I'm comparing myself to Dr. Joe Dispenza, but we have similar styles. Similar styles, I think me, me and me and Dr. Dispenza, <laughs> and um, yeah. So I mean, infuse a lot of different modalities. Which which helps one's one soul recover from burnout because burnout is a lot deeper than just physical recovery. It's very yeah. very very deep. Of course, yeah. And so, in your practice, are you talking about um, coaching and working with patients as well as doctors as clients, or is no, it I'm, everyone? I'm only working with um, doc- uh, clients who are medical pr- uh, professionals themselves, okay. but uh but a big part of my practice with my patients, I talk about compassion-focused therapy, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a small aspect of self-compassion, but infused with some psychological therapies. Uh, my psychologist, psychologist colleagues probably do a bit, uh, do a, I mean, they, they're more honed in and ex, they are, that's their expertise area. Yeah. But I certainly ask my patients and teach them about self-compassion practices, mindfulness, and they do this in our pain. I mean, my patients do it, do it, do those practices in our pain management programs. So our pain management programs now are so holistic now. Um, and a, I'm a whole, I have to, I, I, I am a holistic pain specialist. So I, um, I'm not a big fan of, you know, pharmacotherapy, like pain, pain medications and things. I mm-hmm. think they actually do more harm than good, really. And um, a big part of what I advocate to my patients is mindfulness and self-compassion practices in a pain in a pain management program setting, and this is usually um, taught by psychologists working in in the in the practice. Yeah, that, and then the uh, the physiotherapists that I work with, they help the uh, patients with pain um, kind of move mindfully, which is good because all of us are all talking about the same language. We're all talking about mindfulness in different aspects. Yeah, yeah in, in medicine, in physiotherapy, in psychology. So we're all talking the same language so and patient our patients have done really well <laughs> so um, that shows that once you implement and you actually embody it you can actually have good results from even from chronic pain itself it's interesting you're talking about mindfulness because it has really become very much mainstream it has um over the last 15 or 20 years and it has pretty significant science to back it up um actually mm. a, a couple of weeks ago on this podcast i interviewed um Dr. Stan Rodsky, who wrote the Neuroscience of Mindfulness, oh. and he talked about um, he talked about the mind-body connection and how his his uh, he had friends who were uh, neurosurgeons, and yes. for many years they said, well, "Where's the evidence for what you're doing? You know, mm. where's the proof that there is a connection between the mind and the body? When you show us that, we'll we'll accept it." Yeah. And he said he discovered um, amyloid protein. And he said, amyloid protein is like the smoking gun. He said, this is something that's a byproduct of cortisol production. Mm. So when you feel stressed, when you have, you're producing that stress hormone, yeah. you're, you're causing this amyloid protein to build up in your brain and in your heart. And it's having a negative effect that's on right. the body. And there is a physiological effect. And as he said, um, your, your body can almost respond stronger to imagined stress than it can to actual stress because there's no limit to imagine stress. It, it can be 
permanence, usual real stresses are, are t- tend to be quite short lived. That's right. But the imagined stresses uh, just go on and on and on and on. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Um, so that kind of like, it's, I guess, a learning point for us is, is to um, have healthy levels of stress, I feel, because stress is good to get us motivated to do some yeah. action, but yeah. long periods of stress, which actually eventually leads to burnout, is not good for our health. And certainly, yeah. as, as you said, science is backing that up data very strongly, in fact. You know, you can get, um, you know, I remember when I was, the days when I was close to burnout, I was getting, you know, lots of coughs and colds, and I'm pretty sure my immune system suffered a big hit. So I, I am, you know, like chronic stress can cause not only cortisol, adrenaline levels to be high, but it can cause blood vessel change. You know, people can yeah. get heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol and all those things. And then immune problems with immune function as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's, as you're saying, it's, it's, it's chronic stress because stress in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. In exactly. fact, we need stress to grow without stress. You know, we, we, when we lift weights in the gym, we're stressing our muscles to make them get bigger and stronger. Stress exactly. helps us get stronger as long as we have the, the outlet afterwards, the release of the stress. It's only the, becomes a problem. Like when you talk about burnout is because you have this continual stress with mm. no relief, no let up. And it's, it's ongoing. So yeah. in terms of um, self-compassion and compassion-focused therapy, mm. how does that, what form does that take then in, in managing that stress and, and a relationship with ourselves and how does it alleviate mm. that? Mm. So I guess in, let's talk, just talk about self-compassion mm-hmm. in doctors in general. Um, so that's the main reason why I wrote my book, The Heart-Centeredness of Medicine is, talking about self-compassion for doctors. It's about doctors realizing that besides looking after themselves physically, they also need to look after themselves emotionally and mentally to avoid burnout. And what do I mean by self-compassion in this setting? For example, doctors need to acknowledge and be aware that their mental and emotional health is is declining. That's the mindfulness aspect of self-compassion, which actually is the opening point to a, a conversation and the practice of self-compassion is actually just being mindfully aware or just acknowledging that you're suffering full stop. And sometimes that some people don't even can't even reach there. But that, that's essentially the first point. And the second point is that they need, you know, these doctors need to appreciate that they're humans like everyone else. And then they're at risk of depression, anxiety. And then the last point is doctors need to be kind to themselves so that they can stay healthy in all ways and be the best doctor they want to be. So just to sum up what they mean, it's mindfulness aspect of self-compassion, common humanity, where we need to appreciate and acknowledge that we are humans like everyone else. And then thirdly, being kind to ourselves so that we can stay healthy mind in a mind, body, and soul setting and be the best version of ourselves. That's, that's essentially what self-compassion does. Okay. Yeah. And so do you teach mindfulness practices to the doctors that you work with? Yeah, I teach them meditations and mindful and mindfulness uh, practices. Mm-hmm. It may not, yeah, it's um it's getting them to just be aware of what's going on right now and sitting with their difficult emotions. I think that's the hard bit, like 
what doctors are you so used to doing is to numb themselves when they have difficult emotions or run away from it, really. Yeah. Yeah, because um, when we have difficult emotions, there's basically only three ways we can react. There's the um, fight, flight, or freeze response. Fight response will be we put up our we put our guard up and become defensive. And what what do we do when when we make mistakes? We start criticizing ourselves harshly just to protect ourselves. Because if we criticize ourselves, no one else can criticize us us as hard as ourselves, right? So that's that's essentially the fight response when there's stress, or you know, when stress can be in the form of you know over overwork or just you know they make a mistake at work or things like that. And the second bit is the flight response when there's difficult challenges and there's difficult emotions arise. What do they do? They suppress. They numb. That's the um. That's essentially the um, the flight. They're just hiding. They're running away from their emotions. And unfortunately, this can result in, you know, doctors drinking alcohol, self-medicating, behaviors like that, just to numb their difficult emotions. And the last bit is freezing, which when we face stress and challenges, we start to ruminate. All the thoughts just keep coming back over and over. Like, I'm a failure. I made such a big mistake. How can I be so stupid? Why did I make this mistake? That That's the, the freeze bit which is the rumination of thoughts over and over again. So people uh, perceive um, deal with stress, chronic stress very differently. In, but these three ways are the most common ways. Maybe not just doctors. I think everyone deals with it that way if they're subjected to chronic stress. That's why burnout is so prevalent, not just in the healthcare industry. In, in law, I know lawyers who are burnt out, corporate, mm-hmm. um, even coaches, healers, practitioners, you know, allied health um, Practitioners, yeah, dentists, very high burnout rates as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's really not unique to the health, uh, to medical anymore. It's it's like widespread. I think it's a lot worse now with the pandemic. Really. Yeah. business owners. We now we can include business owners in the mix because they've had to pivot and you know go through such financial constraints during the lock multiple lockdowns. Like, how can they even operate a business a business at all? Really. It's such a challenge, yeah. Mm-hmm. And with, with stress, uh, and I don't know if you're familiar, there, there was a study that was uh, took place in mm. the United States in the early 80s. And yeah. it was a study of people attending uh, GPs at the time. And yeah. they estimated that 80% of people who were attending the GP were attending with stress-related um, illness. And this mm. was in the early 80s. Now, we haven't become less stressed in no. that time. Oh. It's just it's ramped up more and more. So I mean, if you think about that, then does does it? We talk about the the pandemic, but there is just such a vast pandemic of stress, which is killing more people, and so much more widespread than COVID could ever be. And of course, again, that eighty percent of people in the GP surgery are are there with stress related conditions. If we could address that stress, what effect would that have on, on our well-being, on, on our medical systems, on mm. just every level? Exactly. That's why um, we're talking a lot about, you know, mental health, emotional health and well-being in the media now. And that's why, I guess you, you rightfully said, my, mindfulness has become very mainstream. Um, and then I think self-compassion is also starting to become more mainstream, not yet like fully mainstream but it's getting there uh, a lot of people are practicing it now um, 
and it's mindfulness and self-compassion are have they are similar and different at the same time as well because uh self-compassion helps a lot with inner it's more inner building up inner resources yeah i feel like resilience and um yeah just inner well inner inner well-being whereas i think mindfulness is more just being aware acknowledging that there is something going on and just to sit with it and experience it and be aware of of difficult emotions i think they're quite different but they complement each other really well as well yes so can i ask on that then because yeah. I, I know you mentioned um certainly your website and i'm sure it's covered in the book as well is the yes. science of compassion what is the the evidence mm. um because that that's obviously particularly when you're dealing with, with doctors as i'm sure yeah. they're they're very evidence-based yes exactly in terms of practice how does what is the science of compassion and what is the research behind it yeah so kirsten neff is the guru of self-compassion so she is the founder of self-compassion practice essentially Sorry, what's her name again kirsten kirsten neff Kirsten Neff. Yeah, she started self-compassion research. She's actually a, a she's um a, in the academia uh, department in Texas, so she's a researcher. So she's been so she she um started to explore self-compassion. She's she's a mindfulness teacher to begin with, as well as a researcher and academ- academic person. And she started exploring self-compassion as as a research tool to begin with. And she was reading up um, literature on because there were people uh, ahead of her, like Paul Gilbert, who's who was the founder of Compassion Focused Therapy, which is infusing psychological therapies and compassion together. So obviously, Kirsten Neville was very interested in that because she uh, was going through a really tough time. I think she'd just been through a divorce. Her son was autistic, and she was really struggling to be kind to herself. And she just stumbled upon Paul Gilbert's work. And that's how the, her, she founded the three pillars of self-compassion, the mindfulness, which is just being aware, acknowledging that we are suffering from some kind of emotional pain um, of some sort. And second is the common humanity uh, component of self-compassion where you know, we, are, we are not alone. We, we are not alone in this journey of suffering. There are others like us. We're all humans like everyone else. We all are suffering in, you know, we're all suffering together in one shape or form. We, you know, but as part of, and clearly the pandemic has shown that we all we all suffered on one way or another from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the last, I think, and then the last thing Kirsten talked about was self-kindness, where it's, you know, it's not, it's not about judging ourselves harshly um, when we make a mistake. Um and not judging ourselves unkindly. It's it's just learning to accept ourselves, being kind to ourselves, and accept our mistakes for for what they are and learn from them. So there is that forgiveness piece as well in um, of, of oneself in self-compassion. And I think when Kirsten started to apply these three print three pillars together in self-compassion, she was able to be compassionate towards herself. And once that she's able to do that, she was able to be compassionate to her son. Who had quite severe autism, which she was struggling, you know, to handle. And um, once she's discovered all that, she started doing studies on, like, um, I guess many subjects on how self-compassion can help with various areas, how it can help with met positive. It, sorry, it can ed- enhance positive states like 
mm, you know, like optimism and um, well-being. She also did studies on how self-compassion can help with um, negative states of mind, like depression, anxiety, chronic pain even. Yeah, and then she also did other studies on war veterans who have PTSD and found that it actually helps with PTSD recovery. And I think Paul Gilbert did a fair bit of work on PTSD and a few other psychiatric conditions, but Kirsten Neff was able to complement his studies. And she went on, I think she produced a lot of papers. When she started um, self-compassion research, I think the number of literature review of self-compassion just went up to the roof. And she also um, influenced other people to do a lot of research on self-compassion. And overall, I think self-compassion helps with well-being. And there are studies coming from Stanford to show that it helps with productivity, stress. And it's because there is actually a physiological basis for self-compassion. Like, think about it, um, when we are stressed, we activate our sympathetic nervous system, right? And then our parasympathetic system just is it's a bit it's low, it's not as active. Whereas self-compassion is what it does is it actually activates the parasympathetic nervous system and reduces the sympathetic nervous system drive because it releases oxytocin. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept because some, some parts of um, self-compassion practices include like soothing, self-soothing, like self-touch, like putting your hand on your heart. That's the one I teach my mm-hmm. patients. And that's the fact that you, the, the very fact of, of putting your hand over your heart, literally, like <laughs> what I'm doing right now, if you can see it. It's, yeah. yeah, the hand just the fact the hand touching the heart, it releases the warmth itself already releases oxytocin. And oxytocin is exactly. the, the love hormone. Yeah. Love hormone, exactly. And then people, I've taught my clients, either they can even put it on their cheek as well, like turning your, yeah, it's really interesting stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Just, just doing stuff like that. And we do that with our kids. Like we, yeah. we do that. Are you okay? We give them a hug. Essentially, that's what we're doing. We're like hugging our, ourselves in a way. That's, that's what self-compassion is, just being, it's that, it's such a special practice and it has so much physiological um, benefits. And Christina has done so many studies and pioneered so many studies that led on to other people doing research as well on just so many benefits of self-compassion. So yeah, it's, it's definitely on um, getting quite a lot of momentum, this particular um, area of research and I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes mainstream one day, like mindfulness did. Because I think John Kabat-Zinn made mindfulness really, you know. With mindfulness-based stress. Yeah, that's right. His yeah. MS, MSBR treatments yeah. has pioneered everything. You know, you need one person to kind of set the set the movement, isn't it? And Kirsten yeah. is exactly doing that. So we're all yeah. following behind her, <laughs> advocating her work. And it's, yeah, because mindfulness obviously originated in, in Buddhist meditative practice and has exactly. been the John Kabat-Zinn, you know, adapted mindfulness-based stress reduction from the, the yeah. Buddhist practice. Um, but one, one of the meditations in, in Buddhism is loving kindness, is the Mahabhavana, yes. yeah. which is the practice exactly as you're describing. And it's it's amazing how these practices are, are, are practiced for so many, probably thousands of years. Um, and finally, we come along and we say, well, there's actually some science behind this. You know, they're, they're not just doing it for the sake of doing it. It really has quite a profound effect on our mind and our body. Our actual physiology changes because of these simple practices. 
Exactly. And then we certainly do apply the loving kindness practice in the self-kindness component of the practice for self-compassion. Yeah, we don't do the whole script. We don't do the whole script. We just do the um, may I be kind to myself, love, may I love myself. Just a very short snippet. Yeah. Oh, that that forms part of the self-kindness piece for practice, for like a daily self-compassion practice. Quite interesting. Do you find that um the clients that you work with yeah. are open to accepting it? Like do, do they identify the need because they're they're you know burnt out or approaching burnout? Or do you find some people like, oh no, I'm I'm not so sure about that until you actually yeah. present the evidence? Yeah, so um I guess with my kind of work that I do, I will the clients that want to work with me are are quite already involved with some kind of personal development. Okay. So they're they're actually aware of what's going on, but they just need a bit of more guidance and coaching and mentoring to just help them, you know, help them balance their life and get more energy back. Basically, they want to achieve more internal freedom, peace in their minds. And that's what my clients, when they come to me, they all come with the same words. I'm emotionally exhausted. I feel so mm-hmm. isolated. It's all the opposite things of self-compassion. I feel so isolated. Because common humanity means we're not alone. We're all in this together. Yeah. Isolation. It's all the opposite language of self-compassion. When we talk about um, you know, mindfulness, awareness, they talk about over-identifying with their difficult emotions. Like, oh, this is like, I'm so angry at these things. Why is this happening to me? So is that all oh, they feel isolated or they're just being hard, like the opposite of self-kindness, which is self-judgment. Yeah. They say, oh, I'm a, such a failure, you know, like that kind of thing. So they come in to me with those kind of, that's the language they use, which is all the language of non-self-compassion. And then my coaching, you know, style with the different frameworks helps them to get to self-compassion as the heart piece, heart-centered piece. So that's that's what our, the heart-centered doctor is all about. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, when dealing with doctors, um, when because you mentioned doctors, you mentioned other professions as well, facing mm-hmm. burnout, like uh, solicitors, lawyers, um, the well-paid professions, is there a sense that, um, particularly with doctors, that the pay is almost like a, a golden handcuffs, like it inhibits your ability for compassion because you think, well, I'm well paid. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't be feeling sorry for myself. I shouldn't be, you know, I should be able to just push on through. Um, and of course, humans don't work like that. You know, just because we're getting paid well to do something doesn't mean we still don't have, as you say, we are human. We have a human physiology. We're not a robot, mm. you know, so there still has to be that, as you say, that that compassion for ourselves in those situations. Is there a sense that because because you're well paid that there, there's a, a sense of guilt about feeling that? I think there's a lot of myths about self-compassion, certainly. And one of the myths is that it's I'm selfish to do self-compassion. I don't have mm-hmm. time for this. But I think the good a good way to reframe is if you don't look after yourselves now, how are you gonna how are you gonna serve your patients, your your loved ones, or even yourself? So you just re, you reframe it that way. Yeah. The thing is, you know, we are doc, as doctors in anyone in healthcare, we are all programmed to put our patients first. Nothing wrong with that. Like we should obviously yeah. be putting our, our patients first, but we also need to look after ourselves. But the thing is, we we don't because we just got so caught up in the autopilot mode. That's the 
autopilot nature, mm. like the non-mindfulness aspect, where we get so caught up in day-to-day, um, yeah, little, like little mundane stuff that we forget to appreciate what truly is very important, which is ourselves and our presence. It's interesting that you use the language autopilot because uh, mm-hmm. just as you were talking then, uh, it was reminded when I was training in Chinese medicine. Yes. And we were told one day about the importance of caring for ourselves. And the yes. analogy that was given is, you know, when you're on a plane yeah. and they're doing the safety announcement and they say, if you're a parent and you have children, you put your own mask on first and then you put your child's mask on because if you don't care for yourself first, you can't care for them. That's right. That's right. And similar, the similar analogy as, as healthcare professionals, if we don't look yeah. after ourselves, how are we going to look after others? Yeah. Right. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm as guilty of it as, as anyone else really of not, you know, looking after my body. I, I do a lot of physical work in my practice and yeah, I don't, I don't get treatment as often as I should yeah. in, in terms of caring for myself and, and honoring that. Mm. Well, yeah, that it sounds, it's absolutely amazing. I, I love that you're working um, with doctors and, and, and identifying that the heart centeredness of medicine is the book yeah. and your website, are, are you, is it Dr. Olivia Ong or is it the heart center doctor? Is it both? Will both of those things find you? Yeah, uh, you can find you can certainly find resources and my book. Um, it's it's on the uh, web. My website is dralivialeeong.com. Yeah, yeah, that's the website. And is your book available um, from other outlets as well? Yeah, it's uh, not only is it available on my website. It's also available on Amazon and Booktopia as well for the Aussies. Okay, but if, uh, if for the people who are not in Australia. It's available on Amazon, like the normal Amazon, and as well as Barnes and Noble. And yeah. okay, is the book primarily um, for doctors, or is it for anybody? Look, I wrote the book uh, made purely for doctors in general, but some of the principles, or actually, more, all of the principles, is applicable to anyone who's going through burnout. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of your own practice, you're available um, to work with people. And again, on the website, they can find mm-hmm. that with, on, on the, the links that work with me. Yes. You also do uh, speaking? Yes, I speak uh, uh, quite, a, quite a lot in the healthcare industry about burnout in, in the healthcare industry in general. So I talk about burnout, talk about how self-compassion then can help one recover from burnout so that's one of the main um, topics i talk about in that in in my speaking um engagements okay. in the industry and do you still work as a rehab practitioner yes i do i'm still a pain specialist i work in the public hospital and i'm also working private practice as well whereabouts is that yeah so public hospital i work in monash health okay and in private practice i work in melbourne pain group and uh, that's in Glen Waverley, and I work in advanced healthcare in Dandenong and Baronia. Okay, just in case there are people who who have mm. pain issues or uh, spinal right. injuries, and, and you know would love the idea of working with a doctor who has experienced that as well. Yes, what a happy to look after. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Olivia, thank you so much for that. That was just great, great, just so eye opening and, and lovely to hear. Um, you hear your journey, and and you know how resilient you've been in overcoming such big challenges and and using that then to to help others 
Thank you, Mick. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So that was Dr. Olivia Ong. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Ong. Now, for me, some of the key points that Dr. Ong brought up to begin with is the three pillars of self-compassion. So the first one is mindfulness. And we've talked about mindfulness on this podcast before, particularly when interviewing uh, Dr. Stan Rodsky, who wrote the book, The Neuroscience of Mindfulness. So again, you can go back and listen to that podcast episode. But mindfulness really helps us to create space within our mind, within our brain, within our consciousness. And that really gives us space from our anxiety, our stress, the things that really impact us on a daily basis. And that space helps us to get perspective on it. The other thing then is common humanity and how important that common humanity is, that seeing ourselves and others, that we do share that same humanity, that same being. And then self-kindness and how important self-kindness it is, how we often give ourselves a really hard time or often our harshest critics if we were able to record our internal monologue and the things we say to ourselves. Well, often we're not very kind to ourselves and it really is important that we cultivate that sense of self-kindness. You know, if we talk to other people the way we talk to ourselves, we wouldn't have any friends. Not everybody, but a lot of us. So, you know, really thinking about that, you know, how do you know you're improving is how you treat yourself and others. So that was Dr. Olivia Ong. And Dr. Ong is available as a pain doctor in Melbourne. Um, But her own website is DrOliviaOng.com. And as she says, she does work with doctors to help with her Burnout to Brilliance program and how to help doctors to overcome that sense of burnout that is just so common with health practitioners at the moment. There's such a a burden upon our frontline doctors at the moment that they have to bear. And it's really important that, you know, they look after themselves as much as they look after everybody else because they do fulfill such a valuable, such a huge role in our health and well-being at the moment. They are the front line for all of us. Dr. Ong is also available as a speaking uh, coach and she's available um, to provide speaking. So again, the website is DrOliviaOng.com. As for me, I am available at Bodywell Healthcare in Merinda in Melbourne and Northwestern Osteopathic Clinic. I will soon be moving to Freedom Chinese Medicine in Ivanhoe. That will be happening in the new year and I'll be providing um, primarily acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments there. The Modern Wellness Podcast, of course, is available on Spotify, on iTunes. It's available on Podbean and really anywhere that you get your podcasts. So if you're listening, please like, share and comment on the podcast. We'd love to hear your comments on the podcast. If you like what you heard, if you have any suggestions, that you, anyone you'd like to hear or any feedback, please leave some comments for the podcast. And I'll talk to you again next time. Take care. Take care.